This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The series of highly publicized police killings of black men and teens over the past couple of years has some people worried policing is becoming lax, not because of the shootings, but because of the reaction on social media. Count among them FBI Director James Comey, who told a group at the University of Chicago last year, uh, law school rather, last year, that because incidents of police violence can spread so quickly on the Internet, officers have backed off their enforcement. In today's YouTube world, are officers reluctant to get out of their cars and do the work that controls violent crime? Are officers answering 911 calls, but avoiding the informal contact that keeps bad guys from standing around, especially with guns? It's been called the Ferguson Effect, and a team of researchers wanted to know if it's real. David Pyrus is assistant professor of sociology at CU Boulder and led the study. Welcome, David. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So did you find any evidence that a fear of ending up in a viral video makes officers more hesitant to do parts of their jobs? Well, we focus mostly on crime trends in the United States. Um, the, the theory behind it was that officers were going to be depolicing, in other words, not being police, policing as aggressively as they were previously, um, nor there was going to be a change in how citizens perceive law enforcement and the overall legitimacy of the law. Uh, we didn't find any nationwide changes um, before Ferg- or after Ferguson um, in relation to crime trends before Ferguson. Uh, for violent crime, for property crime, or for total crime across large cities. So let's talk a bit about this uh, phenomenon you're calling depolicing. And the theory is appealing in part because after a long period of decline, FBI statistics show that nationwide crime rates went up slightly for the first half of 2015. Uh, given that, how did you reach your findings that the uptick uh, wasn't due to recent high-profile shootings? Well, we looked at crime trends. We looked at what the crime trends were before Ferguson. Each month uh, for one year, we looked at how crime trends were, um, what direction they were moving in um, across these 81 large cities. Then we compared it uh, to after Ferguson each month for one year. Uh, And in some cities, crime was increasing already prior to Ferguson. In some cities, it was declining. But what we didn't see is some sort of change, like a redirection or some sort of inflection point um, after the events of Ferguson. That doesn't mean crime isn't increasing. It is. Um, A recent Brennan Center for uh, Justice report showed that there was a 15% uptick in violent crime in the United States. We just can't attribute that directly to Ferguson. So is the idea that, well, possible violent crime is going up in some places, it's localized, that there is not this large trend across the country? It is localized. It's very localized. In fact, there's so much more variation in crime trends after Ferguson than there was before Ferguson. And I want to talk about this Ferguson effect a bit deeply with you in terms of how that that came about. It seems to me that your study is following uh, these these long trends and you're not seeing anything that, that could relate to something called a Ferguson effect. Do you get what I'm saying? Well, yeah, I, I, I do see what you're saying, but but there are localized effects. We do see large increases in homicide um, in, in a select few cities, which means if there is a Ferguson effect, it is constrained to these few cities. And these cities had characteristics. They have historically high crime rates. They have socioeconomic d- disadvantages. Uh, they have a lower composition of white residents and a larger composition of black residents, uh, which is theorized to be the places where we would expect to find a Ferguson effect to be um, existent. And FBI Director Comey, in that same speech in Chicago, shared an anecdote about depolicing in, in, in the country. I spoke mm-hmm. to officers privately in one big city precinct who described being surrounded by young people with mobile phones held high, taunting them when they get out of their cars. They said to me, we feel under siege and we don't feel much like getting out of our cars. 
I mean, it's hard not to imagine that situation occurring. I mean, aren't aren't anecdotes important? The, though crime rates might not reflect a trend nationwide, could this depolicing still be happening in certain situations? Sure. I mean, it reflects this broader trend of a fraying relationship between the criminal justice system um, and citizens in the community, in particular citizens uh, in minority communities that feel like they're already being overpoliced. And you said there were – talk about the communities that you actually studied. It was not a, a, a large uh, – all these cities across the country. It was a certain su- select number of countries. Well, we focused on – yeah, uh, the 105 cities with populations exceeding 200,000 people. So we were able to include 81 of those cities in our study, uh, which – and it's interesting because the FBI doesn't have – the FBI is the, the, the main portal for collecting data across the United States. And even Director Comey wasn't um, able to determine if there was a Ferguson effect because he didn't have access to the data. So we had to go out and collect data police department by police department from – eighty, and we were able to do it for 81 of these cities. And we've heard that before, that there is not these uh, – you know, nationwide database, of course, of, the, of these uh, types of crimes. Uh, and this is concerning, right? I mean, we, we know monthly jobs reports. We could tell when the stock market's going up and going down. Um, if we want to have appropriate policy responses to crime trends and to crime in the United States, we need to have quicker access to crime data. So why is that data so hard to collect? Well, each police department... well. There's a couple of reasons for okay. it. And, uh, the, the, the main reason um, is that it has to go through a vetting process. They have to make sure that these crimes actually fit the definitional characteristics. Um, and then it gets vetted by police departments, and then it goes to the FBI, and then the FBI uh, vets it as well. I don't know in particular why it takes so long. Um, we still don't have access to monthly crime data uh, from 2014. Um, so it, it is a problem. So where are the cities that you said crimes are actually increasing and, and, and there might be a Ferguson effect in those cities? Sure. Yeah, we, we focus. Um, well, you tend to see this uh, in the larger cities. You tend to see this in cities such as Baltimore, Washington, D.C., St. Louis, you know, cities that are most consistent with where you would expect to find a Ferguson effect. We found we focus specifically on homicide uh, because homicide is going to be the most valid and reliable um, measure of crime that's available, whereas other things could be a little bit more vulnerable um, to recording practices and citizens being willing to speak to the police or report their crimes. So were those concentrated in places that saw a lot of rioting, for example, like Baltimore in response to the killings uh, and, and things like that? Well, I mean, it, the, there were there were riots in right. Baltimore, but right. there were other cities like New Orleans and Washington, D.C. that also saw large increases as well. You limited your study to cities with populations over 200,000 people. The city of Ferguson, Missouri itself is smaller than that. It occurs to sure. me that something like the Ferguson effect could be more likely in smaller cities where crime stats are more volatile. Why didn't you include those cities? Well, for one, uh, the New York Times, the 538 blog, the Brennan Center, they've all done some studies, but they were they were smaller studies. Uh, the number of cities that were included were smaller. So we wanted to be able to focus on a larger grouping of cities uh, because, you know, the way that this has been uh, portrayed is that the Ferguson effect is a nationwide phenomenon, and it's not. The other reason was if, if there is a Ferguson effect with a larger grouping of cities, you're more likely to be able to detect it. Um, and then we wanted to be able to – there was a practical reason, mm-hmm. and we needed to be able to collect data. Um, if we only focused on large cities, there was 105 of them. Uh, if we focused on smaller cities, say from 100,000 all the way up to our largest cities, there would have been well o- about 300 cities. And it just wasn't as practical for us as independent researchers to go out and collect the information. But we would encourage people to go out and do this uh, with a smaller grouping of cities.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking to David Pyrus. He's an assistant professor of sociology at CU Boulder. Uh, there have been other studies that have focused on this. Is that correct? Yes, there have been. And so what is different between those studies and yours? Are they, just, uh, are they all in agreement there? Uh, well, there, there are some differences here. And we looked at crime trends for one. Uh, for two, we looked at seven different types of crimes. Um, so not just violent crimes like homicide, aggravated assault, rape, and robbery, but also property crimes like larceny, uh, motor vehicle theft, and so on. So uh, it was a far more comprehensive study with more cities as well. I suppose it, it's possible that in reaction to the incidents in Ferguson and elsewhere, including the intense scrutiny online, is that people start believing that the law is unfair and thus are more willing to commit crimes. Did, did you consider that in your study? Oh, definitely. That was, I mean, there was three true theoretical perspectives as to why we think a Ferguson effect is taking place. Huh. Depolicing, which we've discussed at length. The other one is is more about uh, delegitimacy. In other words, citizens don't see the law as being distributed fairly. Um, and in response to that, which, which has been demonstrated consistently in social science research, is that uh, when citizens don't feel the law is administered fairly, in turn, they are less willing to be uh, obey the law. Did you look at data before and after the grand jury decision not to indict the officer who shot Michael Brown? That was another point at which the officer's serious actions have come under a lot of scrutiny and may have made officers more nervous. Yeah, well, we didn't really focus on that. I mean, when people talk about the Ferguson effect, they talk about August 9th forward. Okay. Um, and uh, Chief Dotson from the St. Louis Police Department was the one who really coined the term. Um, and, and once he put it out and he said, you know, our officers are tired, we're being, um, we're uh, undermanned, we're, we don't have enough resources. Um, it was it was referring to after Ferguson. Now, the grand jury was definitely important, but that shock really took place in August of 2014. And you also studied cities in Colorado, Denver and Colorado Springs. Uh, what did you see in the crime rates here? Uh, de- both Denver and Colorado Springs were in the middle of the pack. Um, we didn't see declines like we did in some other cities after Ferguson. Um, Denver was spot on on the average, at least focusing on homicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, Colorado Springs was just below the average. Uh, but again, these are middle of the pack. And you know, Denver has experienced uh, some controversial police shootings in the past. And you looked at Aurora as well, but the, the data wasn't there. Is that correct? Yeah, unfortunately, we weren't able to include Aurora, but those three cities from Colorado would have been included in our studies. We just weren't able to get access to the data. Which goes back to your earlier point about the lack of data being readily available. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's important to be able to include cities like Aurora, um, as well as those 24 other cities that weren't included in our study. Are there other elements of this you think that need to be studied? Or are you convinced that the increased scrutiny on police hasn't and won't lead to an increase in crime? Well, I mean, here's the thing. We need to figure out if police are truly pulling back. We need to be able to determine if that's the case. We also need to determine if there are these legitimacy crises taking place among citizens. Are they even less likely to trust the police? Uh, Are they less likely to be reporting crimes to the police? Those are the true things that we think are operating that would in turn lead to changes in crime rates. Now, if those things are taking place, what we don't see is a change in crime rates nationwide. I see. And and do you think there could be an adequate study done without the proper data that you're seeing? Uh, it would be really difficult to be able to study the legitimacy changes because that would involve surveying citizens. Uh, we can see if police are pulling back by looking at more discretionary crimes. Are they less likely to be uh, stopping citizens? Are they less likely to be making arrests for misdemeanor crimes? You know, those are, you know, these tried and true aspects of depolicing. And that can be done. It just we have to wait for the data to come out. David, thanks for joining us. Thank you. David Pyrus is Assistant Professor of Sociology at CU Boulder. For a link to his study, go to CPRnews.org. 
Still ahead, a new type of ecological observatory that's continental in scope. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The effects of climate change aren't always easy to see. They take time and are spread out over huge distances. That's why scientists set out to build a monitoring network for North America called NEON, the National Ecological Observatory Network. It's based in Colorado, but delays and cost overruns have snagged the effort. Gene Kelly is interim CEO. He's also a soil scientist at Colorado State University. Welcome. Good morning, Nathan. I can picture an observatory for the stars, mm-hmm. uh, but an ecological observatory isn't isn't as clear to me. What would NEON look like? Well, well, if you sort of, um, I guess you'd, the best way to, to explain it is if you visualize a map of North America mm-hmm. and um, you have um, some 80 to 90 sites distributed across the entire North American continent, including Alaska, Puerto Rico, and Hawaii. And uh, these sites are all instrumented um, in a standard way with standard protocols. And then if you can visualize these sites distributed across North America and lines connecting them, then they, they become a, an observatory or one observatory. So it's a distributed network of observation sites, and it becomes an observatory. So, so it, it almost is like the size of a continent. Oh, sense. absolutely. It's, a, it's the largest uh, ecological observatory on the planet. My understanding is that uh, this network will address these grand challenges for ec- ecology research. Well, give me an example of one of those grand challenges. Well, of course, I think one that's uh, you know on the forefront of what we see in the news and in politics is climate change. Mm-hmm. And um, it allows us to really look at the responses of these ecosystems to changing climate. And, and not only on a spatial scale, but over a temporal scale, this is going to be a 30-year project. Are there already observatories that study this type of thing? There are some, but um, you know, there's the LTER network and, and others. But uh, this is a little bit different in design because it is so highly standardized across all ecosystems. So that's a little bit different than the observatories that are existing currently. So how would the NEON network then help scientists get a grasp on on these grand issues that you're talking about? Well, I mean, it provides the necessary data to sort of create uh, models that are used to create policy and look at the changes in the biological aspects of these ecosystems, not just temperature and precipitation, but actually how the ecosystem is responding to changes in temperature and precipitation. The project is based in Colorado. Is, is there correct. a reason for that simply just because everyone's here? Or? Well, it's a great place to live, right? <laughs> and uh, well, I think there are a lot of reasons. If you look at the, if you think of the North American continent, it's, mm-hmm. you know, central to the whole continent. And yeah. so it's a great place to sort of center everything. It's sort of geographically centered. Um, also great transportation inside in and out of Colorado with DIA and uh, has a very highly educated workforce. And I, that was one of the major reasons for having it, I think, centered in Boulder. You mentioned earlier the LTR network. Can you clarify what that is? Yeah, the LTR network is, uh, is also funded by the National Science Foundation. That's the Long-Term Ecological Research Network. And it was sort of the prototype for what you're seeing with the NEON. And the National Science Foundation awarded $433 million to this project. That's correct. Back in 2010. Right. Uh, we should note that's the ed- uh, agency that awards grants for science and engineering projects. Uh, then last summer, right. the NSF found the project was $80 million over budget. Uh, correct. And, and far behind schedule. Right. What caused those overruns? Well, um, you know, th- this was the first time they'd ever attempted to build an observatory, a distributed observatory across such a large geographical area. And um, when you start looking, you know, my understanding of it is I'm not an engineer, but when we started looking at the budgeting and scheduling of things, when, when schedule gets changed, 
budget still gets spent. And so it's sort of like building a house and you say, well, here's $100,000 to build a house for over two years and you spend 75000 of that in the first year. That only leaves you 25000 to finish the house over the next year. So there was a sort of a disconnect between the scheduling and the budgeting. And, and the schedule delays had to do with not knowing how to build an observatory across a continent. And huh. things like permitting, you know, all the states have very different environmental regulations. Uh, the partners, for example, the USDA or the Nature Conservancy, they all have very different rules about how to use their property and the long-term nature of their property. So those sorts of delays in permitting and getting access to the properties that we wanted to use really uh, set the program back quite a bit. Well, and there ha- you, you said there have been other observatories built in the past. Haven't they already experienced that? And could that have been a learning point Well, there? not so much. You know, not a distributed ground-based network. This is really the first one um, funded by the National Science Foundation. Last fall, Congress did question uh, NEON because of those delays and cost overruns. Uh, Here's a clip from Republican Representative Larry uh, Barry uh, Laddermilk at that hearing. The fact that we are also here to discuss how this project is 18 months behind schedule is frankly unbelievable and is unfortunately what the American taxpayer has come to think as business as usual. And others in Congress also grid neon for for mismanagement. Yeah, and I and I think that you know there was a bit of mismanagement. I mean, they're they're you know uh, without pointing fingers. I think again, building an observatory that's distributed across the entire continent, you had the National Science Foundation doing this for the very first time. You had a group of scientists doing this for the very first time, and there were you know mistakes made. But I do think you know with the uh, after the descoping that occurred this summer. Um, you know, the, the agency now has taken a very different look at it, and we're highly uh, transparent, an enormous amount of integrity, and there's a new understanding of this is the public's money, and we're being very responsible with the way that's being spent. And so is descoping making the project smaller? Uh, not really, not in terms of scope. Uh, the descoping is a, is a very common th- uh, thing that goes on with other observatories. For example, the, in the news, you heard about the, the, uh, the discovery of the gravitational waves from the LIGO right. observatory. That's an observatory that was built some 30 or 40 years ago, and that went through a descoping as well. So a lot of these large facilities do go through a, a, a descoping. So where is NEON going from here? It seems you have kind of reset a bit. Uh, so where is, is NEON going? Well, I, I think the, the, the future looks bright. Uh, the National Science Foundation stepped in. Uh, they wanted to institute a new management um, entity, and they'll be selecting that over the next month or two. Uh, we've retained staff. Uh, we're uh, accelerating schedule. Uh, we're looking for efficiencies, and we've sort of uh, learned a lot in the first three years of the project. So the, the money that was invested was was uh, was used to the best uh, best possible to build the observatory. But I think that there, there have been efficiencies that were developed during that two or three year period. So you've learned a lot about building something like this, this mm-hmm. project. But what about learning about the environment itself? If you put this to use, that is, is the is the observatory actually up and running in any right. capacity? Well, one of the things that I was brought on to do was to bring on the scientific community. I mean, this observatory is built for the for the, the next generation of ecologists, not necessarily for myself and my colleagues. And so, so this is really going to be a 30-year project okay. into the future um, to bring people on board scientifically. The National Science Foundation just this last year invested $5 million to have investigators come from the outside to work at the observatory. So even a partially built observatory is, has a lot of value to the scientific community. So when can we expect this to be completely up and running based on current projections? Well, okay, if we're on schedule, um, it should be into operations by 218. And, um, you know, 2018, excuse me. And, uh, you know, that's uh, sort of what we're trying to do. So we're committed to sort of meeting the schedule and staying in budget and being responsible with the public's money. Gene, thanks so much for being here. Oh, no problem. I enjoyed it. Gene Kelly is the interim director of Neon Inc. That group has overseen the construction of an ecological observatory for North America. Just ahead, we're falling in love. 
with your love letters. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. For Valentine's Day, we asked for your love letters, and Debbie Harrell was among those to share. She came to our studio with her letter and the man who wrote it, her husband Miller. He read it to us, and we'll hear that in a minute. But first, the couple from Aurora tells us they first laid eyes on each other when they were just 16 years old. We met in high school back in uh, the early 80s and never looked back. Mutual friend. We had a mutual friend who pretty much set us up and was tired of us talking to her about each other, so she set an appointment for us to meet at her locker. She didn't show up, but we did. (laughs) And there was no turning back from the fireworks there. It was too, um, what's the word? It was, it was overwhelming. Yeah. It was really overwhelming to be. That was a, yeah. a magnetic attraction. Mm-hmm. We were both scared to death. Oh, and I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like it at first. It made me uncomfortable. It was easier to have a boyfriend than just break up. I think the yeah. thing that was the most shocking part of it is we found each other to be real. Open and honest. Oh, honesty you know? is everything. You have to be honest. Yeah. Honesty is essential. Spring break for senior year, we we eloped and went, got to, married. The, yeah, went to the JP and got <laughs> married. Yeah, that's exactly right. We're right back to we went high school. Back to school. We figured you got to finish the year, right? And then, uh, yeah. I'm not the best one in the world to talk about my feelings, so sometimes I like to just write it down. He's stoic. Believe it or not, he's very stoic and almost emotionless when you're just physically with him. And so when you ask questions, he doesn't come back. Where I'm the opposite. It's hard for me to put them on paper, but I can, in person, be affectionate. sit down and I'm quiet. I can really just hammer it out and give her the full raw deal without having to break down looking at her in the eyes would kill me you were hauntingly familiar to me when we met the closer we became the more I felt a sensation that this was not the first time you were exotic cosmic and strange though somehow familiar as your soul my soul our soul was reunited I could bore the world with what an amazing person you are. I could go on and on about the friend, mother, wife, etc. you are. Still, I would sit here, no words forming in my mouth, just flashes and floods of memories and the smile of an afternoon daydream on my face. Special, huh? You are. Special. The only person ever cracked through my eyes. He means the world to me. He really does. People talk about, you know, marriage is staying in shape and you have to look good, whatever. But I look at Miller and I think, I would spoon feed him, sponge bathe him, and change his diapers. I love him. It has nothing to do with his appearance, has nothing to do with how in shape he is, has nothing to do with what he can provide. It has to do with just this. And that's all that matters to me. way beyond physical. It's way beyond physical. The physical is just, that's all superficial. We're we're all getting older. It's all superficial. Our relationship has turned into 
you know, the twin flame soulmate aspect, you know, we see each other's mind and soul. Yeah, I love his soul. That was what I fell in love with. It wasn't physical, it was his soul. Absolutely, his spirit. Miller and Debbie Harrell of Aurora. They're 50 and 49 years old now. To another letter, one written in the summer of 1944. John E. Smith was 34 years old and headed to Europe to fight with the Army in World War II. Somewhere along the way, he wrote to his wife, Mary. Decades later, his nephew Joe Hatfield of Grand Junction found it in a box his family kept. Dearest wife, in just a few days now, our 10th wedding anniversary will come to pass. These 10 years have been the happiest of my life. I say truthfully that the best thing I ever did was to bind myself to you with the bonds of matrimony. I still marvel at and congratulate myself on such a stroke of good fortune. Being apart is hard, and doubts will assail your mind. But believe me, darling, never shall I deviate in my love and devotion to you. None shall ever take your place as the mistress of my heart. Merely thinking of you is balm for my loneliness. When this enforced separation is at an end, we shall pick up the threads of our lives together and go on to an even greater happiness. Your husband forever and ever, John. Sergeant John Smith survived the war, left the military, and reunited with Mary. And he became a plumber. They lived out a simple, peaceful existence um, together, doing the things that he loved the most, gardening and taking photos. And uh, he died at the age of 93. They experienced almost another 60 years of marriage together after the war. That's Joe Hatfield of Grand Junction talking about his uncle, John E. Smith. Another Grand Junction writer, Constance Holland, was a student at the University of Denver when she met a man. There was romance and friendship for many years. She recalls a time when they were in California at a beautiful restaurant on the coast of Monterey. He said, you're not the most beautiful woman I know, but we never walk into a place without all the men turning to look at you, and I'm the one with you. No man has ever made me feel more special. It was an odd-sounding compliment, Holland admits. I think it's easy sometimes when you're involved with someone to say the cliché things like, oh, you're beautiful, or, oh, you're special, or any of those things. But this was honest and deep, and it also I mean, it said to me that he... He was paying attention not only to me, but also how other men looked at me. And that made him proud that he was with me. And that was, that was an amazingly touching thing to be told. The pair ended up going their separate ways, and Holland has had other romances since. But of the relationships she still thinks about, this one is the most special. From Contemporary Love Letters, we now turn to a collection of amorous pioneer correspondence stowed in the archives of History Colorado. You'll find marriage proposals, intimate wartime messages, and even scandalous notes from secret admirers. You can see some of these this month at the History Cent- Colorado Center in Denver. Sarah Gilmore is a reference and outreach librarian with the center. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you for inviting me. I'd like to first talk about the letters addressed to Baby Doe Tabor. She was the second wife of Colorado pioneer and businessman Horace Tabor, a bit of an icon in Colorado history, and she had a number of admirers. One of the letters was written to her while she lived in Wisconsin. Could you uh, read that for us? Sure. Yeah, so here's the excerpt. It says, My fair friend, will you be so good as to once more allow me to invite you for a ride? I am the same bad boy, double underline, that once asked you to meet me near your old home. 
And this morning, as I caught your eye as you stepped from the cutter on Main Street, I resolved I would again tax your good nature or meet with denial. I wish you no harm. I will treat you with all kindness. But it does seem as though I must know you. For years I have waited, but as yet in vain. Now I wish more than ever to know you. If you are willing, name the place and time, and you shall not regret having done so. Hoping I hear from you soon, I remain yours truly, a true friend. A true friend. Any idea who wrote this letter? Well, she was living in Oshkosh, Wisconsin at the time. This was um, this was before she'd married Harvey Doe, but okay. after she had met him. Um, we don't know for certain because there's there's no identification aside from a true friend. So, you know, I I, I don't know for certain. Uh, it could be Harvey Doe, but the way it reads, it's hard to say. Interesting. And and the words that they use, I wish to know you. I treat you know mm-hmm. very very much. You have to think through the the, the 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 letter a bit. Right. Yeah. There's some things that he's saying and some things that he's not saying. Another letter is signed only with S. Mm-hmm. It has a much different tone. It also has instructions for Baby Doe in, in the postscript. What does the author ask her to do? So in the postscript, um, he, he writes this letter and he signs it. And he the postscript says, answer this and destroy it after reading it carefully. I will do likewise. She obviously, of course, she did not. She <laughs> absolutely did not destroy the letter. No, no. She hung on to it. And it's a, it's a very... Um, it's a very ardent letter, and there's no location, no date, no identification as to who wrote it. It's It has sort of almost a, a secretive tone to it, um, obviously with the instruction to destroy it. Is it a bit more two-point than, let's say, the first letter you read here? I, 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 I would say so, yeah. And you say the admirer borders on, on stalker-like with uh, to, his language. To me, I think it, it reads a little creepy, maybe. Um, and what, I can, I can yeah. read some, some, some of the letter. What does um, he write? So he writes to her, he says, Your every movement has been watched and weighed by me carefully. The conclusion I came to you can easily imagine, but while I was admiring and worshipping you, you in return treated me coolly and indifferently. Although why should I expect any otherwise? Can I dictate to you? Of course not. Then why should I ask more? I cannot answer. I leave this to you to answer. Oh. So he's sort of wrestling yeah. with these feelings and 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 very animated motion or um, language. Uh, there's also a letter in the collection for uh, written for William Gilpin, mm-hmm. the first governor of the Colorado Territory. That this handwritten letter is from 1874, and now it's not an impassioned profession of love. <laughs> Rather, it's addressed to General Bernard Pratt. Right. I, I want to, to read the first line from it. Gilpin wrote, "My dear General." Your charming daughter, Julia, and myself have made the interesting discovery that we have long mutually and absolutely loved one another. Having no doubt of the entire fidelity of each to the other, we resolve to marry. That sounds gosh darn pragmatic. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's uh, yes, it's very formal. Why? Um, well, for one thing, I think because he was he was writing to ask, as he as he puts it, uh, for parental consent and benediction. Um, so it's it's rather a formal letter. This isn't the time to be you know sort of informal or or um, disrespectful in any way. Um, and I also think he was he was a little bit older at the time, as was his intended bride. She was a widow. Um, so this this was not sort of his first bloom of love. It's not young romance kind of thing. So at that point in his life, it, it may have seemed more appropriate to, to adopt a more formal tone. And it wasn't like he was asking for his hand in marriage, her hand mm-hmm. in marriage. Essentially, like, I am telling you in this very precise way that we are getting married. Right, exactly. And, th- and in that way, I think it's very interesting because you're absolutely right. He's it's It's not a request. It's 
we have resolved to do this and we would we would very much appreciate it if if you and your wife would, you know, give us your your benediction. And is that why you find this particularly interesting this letter? I think it's interesting um just because of the way it's it's written because it's it's a you know, it's a piece of history and because it's an original document from the the first territorial governor of Colorado. That's that's a very personal moment um mm. for a very public figure in our history. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're talking love letters with Sarah Gilmore, a reference and outreach librarian with History Colorado. Sarah, this historical love letter collection also includes correspondence from a World War II soldier to his new wife. Uh, His name was Ben Turbin, an orphan who grew up in boys' homes around Denver. And I understand he and his wife didn't have much time as a married couple before he shipped out to war. Is that correct? That's right. I I, um, very limited time before he he was and he fought in the Pacific Theater Uh and actually um, lived through the Battle of Guadalcanal, Saipan and Okinawa. And they had just a very brief time together before he shipped out with the Marine Corps. And he actually kept a diary that mm-hmm. he planned to share with his wife if he returned uh, instead of mailing her letters. Why is that? Um, his thought was uh, – I think there was, there was kind of a twofold reason. One, he, obviously he knew that his letters were being censored. So there was a sense of – if I'm keeping a diary that I'll be able to deliver to you later on, then I don't have to worry so much about is my message getting through? What can I say? What can I safely say without um, you know undermining the war effort or that kind of thing? Um, I think it was it was also the idea that um, he he would capture more of his day to day life rather than a periodic letter that may take a while to get through to her. The diary is really it's just one short page every day, just a little bit about what he had experienced, how he was feeling, funny anecdotes. Um, every single page of the diary has some sort of endearment or um, tells her that he's thinking of her and that she's the thought of her keeps him going. And again, it was un- unfettered. It was not censored at all because many letters at the time were censored or they just didn't mm-hmm. write, hey, I can't tell you where I'm at. I can't tell you what, my, what I'm doing, but I love you, that type of thing. Exactly right. Yeah. And you say there are a lot of tender moments in, in the journal entries. Mm-hmm. Would you mind sharing one of those? Sure. Uh, that one entry, he, he writes, at night I lay and dream of you and that keeps me go- keeps me from going completely nuts. And I also strive to work that much harder the next day. I hope that my mental telepathy works enough so that you know I still love you with all my heart. Did he survive to give the diary to his wife? He did. He absolutely did. Um, they they uh, settled in Denver, and he worked for the Colorado um, uh Highway Department oh. for many, many years, and they're buried together in Fort Logan National Cemetery in Denver. So how was this? How did you come about this journal? How did you get that? This is a relatively new collection for us. This was um, this was donated just a few years ago. The, the Turbans did not have any surviving relatives when, when they both passed away. Um, so they, their papers and their effects went to a very good friend of theirs, a friend of the family. But they had taken the care to transcribe the diary hmm. and to organize everything. They even made an audio tape reading the diary. So I think even though they knew that they wouldn't necessarily have family to pass this along to, I think they had a sense that they wanted it to be preserved. Um, so that the the friend of the family, once they had received these documents, I think got the sense that this is really worth sharing and worth preserving. And that friend of the family donated it to History Colorado. Um, and it's it's only become available um, in our library and, re- and research center within the last year or so. And, and the love letters, of course, that you've had and the journal that you have, they're, they're tangible. They're, they're, they're yes. pieces you can hold uh, in this, of course, world that is nearly all digital with, mm-hmm. with emails and text messages. Is the love letter on its way out? Is it a, is it a form that's going to die away? 
I, I don't think so. I think I think the format will change. I mean, I think it's human nature. Everyone loves a love story. Um, you know, it's something that we can all relate to and that we can all kind of aspire to no matter how far removed we are. You know, it's it's great to get a love letter no matter what the format, whether it's email or text um, or, or a handwritten letter. But I, I think there's something special about these handwritten letters and and whether the format changes, the sentiment stays the same. And final question, how do you save something like a text message or something like a, a, an email? It seems very interesting. In the, in the... And that that's a, a source of much discussion in the archival community right now is how, how do we hang on to these things? How do we make sure that they're archived properly and saved so that – you know, 50 years from now, 100, 100 years from now, people can enjoy these same love stories. Sarah, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much. Sarah Gilmore is a reference and outreach librarian with History Colorado. You can see My Dear Sweetheart, love letters from the collection now through the end of the month. You can also read excerpts of them at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Loud and clear is where we get your feedback. And you had a lot to say about our conversation with Kurt Jensen. His son was convicted as a teenager in a 1998 murder. The U.S. Supreme Court just ruled that inmates serving life without parole for crimes they committed as juveniles can have their sentences reviewed. Jensen told Andrea Dukakis he hopes the ruling will give people in Colorado like his son a second chance. He has become a very mature person who understands both what happened in the past and he served his time for that and now he wants to move into the future and he's done all kinds of things in order to try to prepare himself to get out. Some states have already adjusted their laws to allow for sentencing reviews. Many of you express that it's time for Colorado to do the same like Lillian Biffle of Albuquerque. She writes on her Facebook page, the Colorado legislature needs to do the right thing. It's been too long. Ray Gibb, who listens to us in California, blames prosecutors. Quote, no matter what gets changed, if the prosecutors continue to run amok, it really will not matter what the law is. Following a joint investigation by CPR and NPR, four U.S. senators called on the Army to put a moratorium on kicking out soldiers diagnosed with mental health problems and dramatic brain injuries. CPR's Michael DeYuana gave us that update, and listener Frank Ortman responded on our website with this. Following the tailhook scandal of the 1980s, Congress put holds on the promotion of officers involved. Senator Bennett can do the same with the Army's promotional list for generals. Problem solved, if he wants to solve it. The story of these veterans also resonated with Drew Plummer of Atlanta, who says, This happened to my friend, and it cost him his life. This must stop. Many of you were touched by Ryan Warner's interview with Patricia Byrne of Westminster. Her son Kurt is a recovering heroin addict, and to cope, she blogs about the experience. Child psychologist Dr. Heather Harrison heard the conversation. She runs a website called The Mommy Psychologist, and she reached out to say that encouraging people like Byrne to share their stories is, quote, one of the best ways to combat addiction. Recently, I did a segment about Sharrows, the white outline of a bicycle and two arrows painted on the road. It means drivers must make room for cyclists. As we told you, a study out of CU Denver questions their effectiveness. James Donahue of New York thinks riders need to take more responsibility for their safety. Quote, cyclists need to use rear mirrors and keep aware of the situation around themselves. The motorist cannot be expected to be perfect 100% of the time. And finally, we re-aired Ryan's interview with extreme skier Chris Anthony. He put together a documentary about the 10th Mountain Division, the soldiers on skis. The encore airing stirred up memories for some of our listeners, including Jerry Jones of Lakewood, who grew up hearing about the men of the 10th Mountain and how they paved the way for recreational skiing in Colorado. They scouted out all the good places. So the areas we have now came 
a lot from their knowledge of where the good snow was. Jones remembers the wooden skis he used in elementary school in the 1950s. They were just a step up from what the 10th Mountain used, and he says they were pretty rough. The skis that we had at that time, they were just starting to develop what they called safety bindings. So we wore the old leather boots, and there was a, a lever on the front of the ski with a cable attached to it, and you'd put that, that cable went, you know, uh, back around your boot, and you just push that lever down. Skis weren't the only things different back then, so were the prices at places like Arapahoe Basin and Loveland. It was a big shock when they went to $3.35. <laughs> that was, oh, maybe we can't afford this anymore kind of thinking back in those days. That was an increase from $3.00. Your feedback is priceless. Keep it coming. We're CPR News on Facebook, at Colorado Matters on Twitter, and emailing us is as easy as going to CPRnews.org and clicking Contact at the top of the page. You can also comment on individual stories at the bottom of articles on our website. Now, a unique photography exhibit at the University of Denver, Hunger Through My Lens, features photos taken by women who've gone hungry. In 2014, the show made a stop at the state capitol. Then, Colorado Matters producer Leslie McClurg met up with two of the photographers. Elizabeth Deeg occasionally eats lunch at the same cafe in Denver. Can I please get the eggplant tomato soup and the three cheese pizza? The cafe on a stretch of East Colfax feels like any other busy diner at lunchtime. But you can get a good meal here without any cash in your pocket. Customers can donate what they can afford or volunteer their time to pay for a meal. Some of Deke's photos hung on the walls at the nonprofit restaurant in December. The Hunger Through My Lens exhibit was here that month. Her favorite shot is called The Balancing Act. It's of a silver fork that's bent in half, and the prongs are all askew. We can't eat with a bent fork, nor can we eat with a broken system. Deke has autism and post-traumatic stress disorder. Her pale green eyes often fill with tears when she's talking. She tightly grips her thin, shaky hands over and over. It makes me hyperventilate and sweat just thinking about having to go out my front door. Four years ago, Deke was in an abusive relationship. She was 29 years old. The fighting started when her ex-boyfriend began asking for money. And then it became more money. And then it became threats that he would kill me and abuse. And then I became pregnant. And I had a miscarriage. And I was very depressed about that. And his solution to that was then to rape me. She decided to hide from her abuser. She quit her job as a legal aid, and she moved out of her apartment. She quickly depleted her savings, and for a time, she was homeless. I never imagined myself to be in that position ever. She's now on food stamps, Medicaid, and state disability assistance. She lives on about $350 a month. And she's applied for federal disability benefits, but she's struggled to get her case approved. She says it's tough for people like her to get the services they need. We're expected to find jobs and get well and go to doctor's appointments and make sure that we have shelter for the night. And we don't even know when our next meal is. Robin Dickinson didn't expect to need help either. You don't go into medical school saying, you know what, I think I want to be in poverty when I grow up. 
Dickinson is a family doctor in private practice. That might be a lab. Remember, quiet. Quiet family medicine is Dr. Robin Dickinson. But she only sees about 8 to 10 patients a week. That's all she can physically handle. Last year, she had two debilitating strokes. She was 31 years old. Thankfully, they didn't affect me cognitively at all, but it affected my balance. And I get really, really fatigued very quickly. And when I'm fatigued, if I'm walking down a haunt and walks past me, I fall into the wall. Dickinson's husband, Tim, is a stay-at-home dad for their two toddlers. Because he didn't graduate from college, it has always made more sense for Robin to be the breadwinner. Tim does even more at home since Robin got sick. All my energy goes to work. When I'm not working, I'm sitting. And he's doing everything else. Including helping Robin to get dressed, clean the house, and care for four-year-old Charlie and one-year-old Eleanor. Do you need, need choo-choo to do a real whistle? Every morning, he makes the family breakfast. A bite? A big bite? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me get some in the spoon for you and you can feed yourself. Today, they're having oatmeal with strawberries and scrambled eggs. Dickinson says they eat a lot better now. It was rough for several months while she was recovering and she could barely work. We were down to eating potatoes and then rice and then oatmeal and then the potatoes and then rice and then oatmeal. And then we ran out of teriyaki sauce, so the rice got really boring. The family dropped their health insurance, they sold their car, but Dickinson struggled to admit what was really happening. I still had this thought that poverty is over there, away from me, somewhere else, some other neighborhood, some other situation, that it couldn't happen to me. And then she had a realization. One evening I said, Tim, we're in poverty. I think we qualify for, like, Medicaid and food stamps. Their first trip to the grocery store, when they could afford to shop again, was a true celebration. Charlie's like, can we get a watermelon? Yes, we can get a watermelon. And Eleanor wanted cucumbers. I got some salad and we got some meat and teriyaki sauce so that the rice wouldn't be so boring. Dickinson heard about the project, Hunger Through My Lens. She submitted a picture of her daughter Eleanor running with a carrot in her mouth. She was laughing and holding it. And I just, it really made me think about how happy food makes us. Dickinson titled the picture Better Than Candy. It's one of Lauren Ingalls favorites. She runs the photo exhibit through the advocacy organization Hunger Free Colorado. She says hunger affects everybody differently. There's not one story, and we consider individuals who experience that the real experts. Ingalls says 840,000 Coloradans couldn't afford to buy food at some point in 2012, and 1 in 10 Coloradans are on food stamps. She wants policymakers to pay more attention. The women right now are brainstorming ideas to send a video to President Obama and brainstorming ideas to meet with Senator Bennett. She says the photos are both political and therapeutic. Elizabeth Deke agrees. One of her photos is a close-up of a bright orange flower that she took at a local shelter. She titled it Beautiful Distraction. Flowers are one of my favorite things, and since I had my camera with me, I just kind of melted into it and and seeped into a a calm, and it was my welcome, beautiful distraction. Hunger Through My Lens will travel to various Kaiser Permanente offices throughout the year. Leslie McClurg, Colorado Public Radio News. That story from 2014, Hunger Through My Lens, runs now through March 11th at the University of Denver Museum of Anthropology. You can see photos from the exhibit at cprnews.org. And that's our show for this Friday. Thanks to audio engineers Michael Hughes and Matt Hers, our director Andrew Dukakis, producers Kareem Maddox, Sam Brash, Michael DeYuana, and Stephanie Wolf. And I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great weekend.